Welcome to Stacks and Stories, the podcast of the Mississippi Library Commission. On today's episode, Tracy Carr sits down with photographer and documentary filmmaker Michael Ford. He moved to rural Mississippi in the 1970s and recorded his life here through photographs and film. So find out more about his new book and film, North Mississippi Home Place, right here on Stacks and Stories. Hey, this is Tracy Carr, and I'm with uh, Michael Ford, author of North Mississippi Home Place. Welcome, Michael. Well, thank you, Tracy. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell us originally, tell us what the book is about generally, and then we'll move on to my more probing questions. Okay. The book is essentially my memoir, if you will, of uh, the five years I lived in North Mississippi. Uh, I'd come down from Boston to visit in-laws over Christmas. Two days later, we moved here, moved to Oxford. Uh, I wound up apprentice to Mr. Hall for five years, the blacksmith who was down by Avench Gin, and uh, made a documentary film, during the course of which I also uh, made about a thousand still photographs, or that I wound up with a thousand photographs that were still around in 2009 when uh, the thing came back alive after sitting in, literally sitting in my closets for 40 years. My daughter Deirdre kept saying to me, Dad, you're going to croak and all the provenance of everything you've done will be lost. And at the same time, technology had come together so that somebody like me could do a professional job of scanning, recording, cataloging, all this material. Lightroom came along and scanners, high-end scanners came out that were reasonably priced and suddenly everything was clean to go. When I apprenticed to Mr. Hall he would he would tell me things. Oh, for instance one time he told me that it ain't what's in a man that defines him Michael, it's what he lets out. And the other thing he said was very important was when your angels talk to you you best listen. And uh, one day I was, I was listening to Mr. Hall's recordings and I got kind of all soppy and sappy and sentimental and uh, I went to uh, think, you know, I was thinking about all sorts of things and the angel came to me and said, call the Library of Congress now. So I called the Library of Congress, which was just down the street, and uh, I said, hi, my name is Michael. I've got uh, 16,000 feet of 16 millimeter and about 1,000 still photographs and 10 and a half hour field record of recordings. Um, would you guys be interested? And the voice on the other end said, you sure got the right guy. It turned out to be Todd Harvey, who is director of the American Folklife Center. And so everything kind of went over to them. And then after that, uh, Ralph Eubanks, who was head of publications in those days, asked me to write up a page or two about what I had given them. And I started, and it turned out to be about 10 pages or something. And uh, he said, I said to him, well, Ralph, this is more than you asked for. He said, do you have more still? I said, yeah. He said, we'll keep going. And eventually that turned into the book. That's wonderful. Um, so you said that you you came to visit in-laws and then two days later you moved here. Now was that just because you were just struck by the 
beauty of, of everything, or was, was oh. there any, anything else that happened? Well, I went out for the, it's a, it's a long story, which I'll, I'll cut short, but my car, my Volkswagen bus had broken, and I was stuck at uh, Dr. Fox's house on Leighton Road in Oxford, and uh, a friend of mine said, you must be bored stiff, do you want to go for a ride in the country? I said, sure. And it was December, so it was first frost, which I learned was hog killing time. And we went out into the country and the kettles, big kettles were coming, being dragged out in front of the shotguns and the uh, dog trots. And uh, the single trees, which I didn't know were single trees, were being hoisted into the, into, um, the trees to spread the hog's legs so they could gut them. And I thought, this is the FSA photographers of the 1930s. This is Dorothea Lang and Eudora Welty and Arthur Rothstein and Ben Sean and Walker Evans and Gordon Parks, all those people, except it was live and in color in front of me. And I thought I couldn't walk away from this. This was too effervescent. Uh, if, if I turned my back, it was going to vanish because I had no concept that this could be existing in... 19... Like in your life. In, it's not something you're looking at in a photo. You were looking at it live. Live, yeah. yeah. I, in fact, I had no camera with me when, when we did it. And uh, I thought that if I walked away from it, I'd never forgive myself, that I was being presented with an opportunity. I had just gotten a job as a teaching assistant at Emerson College. And uh, two days later, I called him up and said, Hi, we're, forget it, I'm not coming. And uh, we got another U-Haul and moved to Oxford, Mississippi. And then uh, Providence, God, fate, kismet, whatever it was, somebody told me there was an old-timey blacksmith uh, backed by Avent's Gin uh, uh, off Lamar Street, one block off the square. And uh, I went down to visit Mr. Hall. And uh, we got to talking and after a while, he said, young fella, would you mind picking up that piece of metal for me? And I said, at that time, since I was a Yankee, I, I, I probably said, yeah, sure, no problem. Where later on, I'd say, yes, yes sir, sir, I'd be glad right. to. Uh, and as I reached for it, he said, you might want to spit on it first, see if it's hot. And that was my first lesson in blacksmithing. <laughs> and it turned lesson. out to be exactly where I needed to be because the people who came to Mr. Hall for work were the old-timey farmers who were still plowing a mule, still needed their middle buster sharpened, still needed handles put on their plows, uh, they needed somebody to sharpen their bush hog blades, and uh, so I met the people that were working the old-time way, and they would let me, I got to learn who they were, and they got to learn who I was, and so I got to photograph them and meet them and record them. And uh, I got access through Mr. Hall to a world that was vanishing. Um, in, in the book, you talk about, uh, you mentioned that Mr. Hall, he opened his shop in 1910, mm -hmm. and it was 62 years later. So how, how old a fellow was this? Like, obviously, this is not a, a young person <laughs> who is teaching he you this He was 84 crowd. when I apprenticed to him. He had, uh, he had started in Oxford in 1910, then he had gone off to Texas in 1917 to shoe mules for the Army, and then he came back to his shop in, in uh, Oxford. And um, 
you say there there that he taught you that you can't you can't fix a thing if you don't know what it's for or exactly. how it's going to yes. be used. And I thought that was a great metaphor for I don't know something. Just for, about everything, actually. Yeah, sure. Well, we, it can apply to everything. Um, and there's just a, another few details that that jumped out at me that he rolled his sleeves inward. Oh yes, yeah. You catch a spark in your shirt or your shirt pocket or whatever, and uh, suddenly you're very unhappy and you're moving quite a bit in a lot. So if your sleeves are rolled in rather than out, a uh, spark won't catch in the cuff. Uh, if you get if a spark jumps out of the fire, it just bounces off you, and um, you move on. You keep going. You were uh, you know sort of struck when you first moved to Oxford, and I can imagine and the early 70s, how it was different than it is now. Oh, yeah. Um, but you wrote, uh, you could walk to almost anything you needed, yet you were worlds away from a lot you might want. And that is that is a great way of putting into perspective, like, sure, if you need something, it's here. But all the things that a person might want may not have been there. Well, you could get pretty much anything you needed to eat at the Jitney Jungle, as long as it wasn't liverwurst, salami, rye bread, bagels, or God help us, pretzels. <laughs> right. They didn't Some know what a pretzel Yankee was. Food, right? Well, I didn't ever realize that the pretzels were Yankee food until I got, and, and when pretzels arrived, it was a big deal for a number of people. In those days, somebody would, would uh, call you up and say, I'm heading to Jackson which meant they were going to the old-time delicatessen, mm-hmm. which meant you got a chance to order your cheesecake and maybe they would have pastrami. Uh, and it was, it was sort of a social obligation to call anybody who cared about that sort of thing when you were going to Jackson and you would wind up picking up stuff for 10 or 15 people. I remember when Kroger came to, down, came to town and you could buy frozen bagels, it was a revelation. <laughs> Was there like a bagel party? Did everyone just celebrate with the... Well, the biggest one was when a Chinese graduate student brought his aunt in from Hong Kong, and they set up a closet-sized Chinese restaurant, which was the first foreign food to hit Oxford. Mm -hmm. And the place was mobbed immediately. I bet. Yeah, Oxford was a dry town in those days. You used to have to drive up to Marshall County, across the Tallahatchie, and one foot across the Marshall County line, there was the trailer selling the beer. And the Lafayette County Sheriff would sit on the south side of the bridge, and the students, you were pretty okay if you were older, but if you were a student, you were a target. And so the students would get four or five cars, and they'd go in convoy, knowing that the sheriff would get one car, but the other four cars would get through. Now, you wouldn't get arrested or anything, but they'd seize your beer. That's even worse than getting arrested, right? Did if you're you, a college student. Did you see? Did you see the photograph of Bowles' thing? Is uh, vote for beer, or do you want your children to turn to marijuana? What an argument! That was on the the wall of Bowles' uh, cafe uh-huh. and shoe shop, next to uh, Tom Freeland's law office. Um, Startville. When I moved to Startville in 1995, uh, you could buy beer, but not cold beer. Yeah. And so that I think uh, Oxford was the same way for for a while when Up they finally to about f- a couple of years ago. Yeah, I mean this this was this is you just have to drive somewhere and buy it cold, you know. Uh, but uh, my students told me all the various ways you can get beer cold in like thirty seconds. 
So you fill a... Inventive little fellows, Yes, they really they? are. You fill a sink with ice and cold water, and then you spin the beers constantly. And somehow that just makes them... Anybody ever tell you about hitting it with a fire extinguisher? No. No, they did not. <laughs> yeah, fire extinguisher, foam, a uh, fog fire extinguisher will freeze it up real good quick. Oh, okay. I, I mean, I'm guessing After a while, you can't put out a fire with it well, anymore, yes. but your yeah, beer's there are cold. definite disadvantages to that technique. Everyone has a sink, but maybe not just a handy fire extinguisher hanging well, around. Well, the fraternity house would have tons of them. That's true. That is true. Um, I want to talk about Waldrop's store. Tell us about going to Chulahoma and Waldrop's and all the people you met there and everything about it. Well... Chulahoma in the old, old days was a major stop on the stage route from Memphis to Jackson. Then, and it had uh, something like 300 blocks, it had a college, it had uh, a couple of hotels, it had a woman's seminary, uh, and they were hoping to become the Marshall County County seat. Holly Springs got that, and then since Holly Springs was the county seat, it also got the railroad. And so Chulahoma began to die. Then during the Civil War, the place was burned. By the time I got there, there was Sid Ford's tractor repair place, Hal Waldrop's general store, and a whole row of abandoned late 1800 gristmill general store, various, there was about, oh, a dozen buildings that were all tumbled down. And the only place that was really still going was the general store. And for whatever reason, Hal knew what he had. And he would say, well, I could fix this up. I could air condition it and put it all out there on tables for them and they could wait on themselves, but it just wouldn't be Chulahoma no more. <laughs> and so he kind of knew what he had. And it was an amazing place. It was post office, it was clothing store, it was food store, it was shoe store animal feed, hardware store, um, you know, tin tubs hanging from the ceiling, handles for anything you needed, axe handles, shovel handles, pick handles. So you could get your handle at Waldrop's, and you could go to Mr. Hall to get your axe part or whatever they're called, yeah. right? <laughs> and the other thing, and I recently I found out, and it was also a gathering spot where mm -hmm. everybody got together to meet and greet and so on. Uh, and I found out from Hal's granddaughter recently that it was also the polling place. Oh, interesting. So it, it was the place for just about everything in the world. And everybody came in, and the atmosphere was welcoming. And uh, we had been driving around North Mississippi with tope sheets, just searching for, we didn't know what exactly, but we were looking down, we went down every single road, and we'd stop at places and get a cold drink or ask for directions, more or less to see who was there and what was going on. And when we got to Hal's, he greeted us or accepted us. And when he said, y'all come back to see us here, we really thought he meant it. And so we became regulars and got to know all the people who was there. And they w would invite us over to see their place or uh, we'd drive by and they'd wave, we'd stop. and and uh, visit for a while. And we seemed to be accepted into the community and it just 
it was a quintessential general store and it was straight out of 1920s mm -hmm. It had no right to exist in, in, in 1972. It definitely doesn't look like the early 70s from the photos. The only things that look like semi-modern life, there's a photo in your book of some of the items, uh, some of the products, and you can, you know, there's like some Tide and some other detergent. And only the labels, uh, the only the labels of the products, those are the only things that look slightly modern. But, but the, the way other, they're stacked on the shelves. Yeah, that is true. That is true. But yeah, I thought that, that photo was fascinating because even though it's 40 years ago, it is it looks modern in an older time. So, um, Well, this, the way, they, way you bought things was different. You didn't go around and pick up stuff and then take it to the cash register and, and pay out. You'd say, I need a pound of flour, and he'd go get that. I need, a, um, I need some bugler, he'd go get that. Uh, I'm gonna get, What's get, bugler? Oh, it was roll your own tobacco. Oh, okay. People didn't smoke ready-mades. Right. Uh, and he would go get you each item as you wanted it rather than you waiting on yourself. Mm -hmm. I was, uh, and people would gather in, in uh, wintertime in the back by the, well, there's a photograph of the, the old stove mm -hmm. with a couple of gentlemen sitting around talking. It was, uh, it was another world. You know, looking at the photos of it, and then um, I watched the film last night, which also has shots of the store. It made me homesick for it, and I've never been there. You know, I wanted—I really wanted to go. Um, well, one of the things that I think we were very lucky in is since we were there, uh, I've heard people talking about photographers and folklorists and so on parachuting into Mississippi, mm -hmm. coming for a day, a week, two weeks, getting what they thought they wanted and then leaving. Well, I was there for five years. Mm -hmm. So I think I, I got down some levels right. that normally people wouldn't get go to yeah, or you'd think, get to. I mean, you just said that, but it, it now it makes sense why the photos are so intimate. You, you weren't taking photos of a thing. You were of that thing, too. You were welcomed into it. The, pe the people I was photo who were photographed knew me. They knew who I was. They knew who my kid was. They knew where I lived. They knew I worked for Mr. Hall. Uh, the, in the molasses sequence, for instance, mm -hmm. A.G. Newsom, the molasses maker, brought his pan into Mr. Hall's for repair. And Mr. Hall and I put it up on a set of sawhorses, and we filled the pan full of water. And anywhere the I got under it with a straw, and anywhere there was a leak, I'd poke the straw up through the hole. Mr. Hall would get these big copper soldering irons out of the fire, and he'd solder the whole thing. Well, when A.G. came to pick the, the pan up, I asked him what uh, he was going to do with it, and he said he was going to make uh, Doc James's crop. Well, I knew Doc James from Hal Waldrop's store in Chulahoma. So I asked A.G. if uh, uh, I could come film and photograph it, and he said yes, pretty much not because I was a, some kind of filmmaker, but rather I was Mr. Hall's apprentice, and if I was working for Mr. Hall, I had to be okay. You really did just stumble into the right place and that w for you at that time. Uh, well, you know, looking back at it, uh, I thought of myself as stumbling, but I look back at it in another way and say, I've managed to cooperate right. with what I was supposed to be doing. Right. 
I mean, it, it, the whole thing just has, even now, has worked out in ways that shouldn't have. I mean, I, I, I show somebody a photograph and they say, I know that person. Uh, we're, doing, we're doing a thing at the Como Library. Mm -hmm. And I went through and picked up uh, frame grabs of people's faces who are in the film. And uh, Amy Henderson at the Como Library has put it up on their Facebook page. And we're getting names and stories and dates uh, of the people who are in the photographs. It's wonderful. So it's still alive. Yeah. It's still, it's still going on. So, um, so the photos in the book are the, the stills that you took along the way as you were filming the, mm -hmm. the, the film. Um, well, well, actually, they were the research. Okay. With 16-millimeter film was so expensive. We go to Africa with video. We can spend a month in a village someplace, shoot 400 hours of video, and the, the uh, material costs you a couple of hundred bucks. Well, it costs you a couple of hundred bucks to shoot 100 feet of 16 millimeter film, get it processed, work printed, edge numbered, and all the rest of it. So you couldn't shoot crazily like you can with video. And so all the research was done with stills, and I was shooting the same emulsion on stills that I would be shooting with the video. Mm -hmm. uh, Ektachrome, EFB, tungsten film on the 35. So I got my exposure tests and light balance tests and all that on stills. And it also served as a bridge to the people. I could try to explain, even though I didn't quite know myself why I was doing what I was doing, mm -hmm. but I could try to explain about documentary and that sort of things to people. Or I could just show them the photographs. And they'd look at the photographs and, and I guess figure out I did respect them. Mm -hmm and there was nothing patronizing or condescending, and so I was welcome to photograph their, their, their lives, their children, their, their places, um, because they had seen kind of what I was doing. Um, speaking of uh, when you said the getting your light tests or whatever technical term <laughs> you used, uh, you talk about how Mississippi has a pearl hour. Oh, talk yeah. Talk about the pearl hour for a moment. Well, most people know about golden hour, mm -hmm. sunrise and sunset, when the color temperature of the light warms up and it, it goes golden. But in wintertime, certainly in North Mississippi, I don't know about all of Mississippi, the light would get this sort of pearlescent blue with a touch of purple or violet in it. Uh, Kind of in the you know we talk about Dutch light in paintings of Rembrandt and all those guys. Mm -hmm. uh, this was uh, a special light that I had never seen anywhere except in in North Mississippi in wintertime, and we called it the Pearl Hour. I love it. I love it. It took me years to get the light right. I photographed that and photographed that and was never never ever happy with it. And then I got a few and breathed a sigh of relief. Well, it's clear that, you know, like you said, the photographers who come, they parachute in, take some pictures and, and leave. That's so not what you did. And, you know, your reverence and, and respect for Mississippi and your subject is, is clear, not just through 
your work, but just the way you speak about um, the, the process you went through. I was very, very, very fortunate to be there at that time. And it was a huge time of change in Mississippi, of course. There was a phrase that people used to use, which is pretty much forgotten now, but old people recognize it. People were saying back then, it ain't a white thing or a black thing, it's a green thing. Meaning money. What does that mean? Money. Oh, money. Got it. You know, the, the uh, people were realizing that you couldn't have uh, a Nissan plant in a segregated society. And that, like it or not, change was coming. And most people, and actually there was a lot of people who just didn't like the way things were going. And they were saying the violence, the anger, the hatred is just not us. And whether you were enthusiastic about change or not, you accepted it because you were sick of not being us. Right. So uh, the first half of the book, it, it's the photos from, your, from the 70s. And then the second part, or maybe it's the third, the, the, the last part, you, it's your return. You, yes. You return to Mississippi. Um, after 40 years. After 40 dear. years. Um, and uh, you, you write in the book, I would look for remnants of the past and perhaps gain a new perspective on an old experience. So what did you find when you returned? Well, the old-timey stuff was gone. The shotguns are all gone pretty much. The dog trots are all gone pretty much. The people that I knew in 71, I, I would run into people who had been to Holly Springs a dozen times, maybe been to Memphis twice. Well, their grandchildren now go on cruises. They fly to Paris for two-week vacations. They're on the internet. They can get anything they want from Amazon. It's a, it's a whole new world. They're living in nice brick, uh, air-conditioned, carported homes with internet and, and cable television and satellite dishes and all that. That's about as far removed as you could from uh, a kerosene-lit, outside, privy, water pump shotgun house mm -hmm. with livestock. So there wasn't much of the past to find. But what emerged was a, uh, the land had always been the setting for the gem of the people and the architecture and the culture. So although, well, there were still people there, but a lot of the old timey stuff was gone, but the land was still there. Mm -hmm. And so I've found myself photographing the land that had once held the people, because the land is still, it, it, North Mississippi I find is so soft and easy on the eye. You know, I've written that there's no Grand Canyon, there's no sequoias, there's no massive mountains. Um, they used to talk about Thacker's Mountain, which we used to refer to as Thacker's Bump. <laughs> but this, the land itself is, is just beautiful in the colors and the softness. So coming back, I was focused pretty much on the land itself and the photography and also finding the, the descendants of the people who were in the original work. Uh, did you, is the Pearl Hour still a, a thing? Did you, did you well, re I haven't been back. Well, I haven't been back in winter. Okay. I've been, I've, I've been back since 2013. I've probably been back 20 times. But been, just never in winter. 
Yeah, it always seems to be spring or fall or lots of summer. Well, we have a, we have more summer than we have anything else, so that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. But one of these days, I'm going to come back in wintertime just well, to check just it out. to check the pearl hour. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm going to check out the pearl hour. I, I may not know what I'm looking at, but I'm I'm going to give it oh, a shot. Oh, you'll find it. You go you go up in those those gentle hills. Uh, those are that rolling landscape, and the you know the trees and the the brush sage, what well, broom sage, uh, and uh, you look at the sky and it'll be pearlescent. If you see it, you'll know it right away. Oh, I'm going to go look, go look for it. I'll, I'll tell you. Um, there are some photos in in the book where you go to the same place that you you have a photo that you took. 40 years ago and you compare it to now. Um, but one of my favorites, I mean, I, I liked the, the city scene or town scene of downtown Holly Springs of, you know, then and now. But I loved the, the two photos of Tyro Road. Um, oh, okay. I, I think it's just how you described it. I think you said like it was immediately recognizable, even though uh, it was dirt 40 years ago. It is some kind of pavement, maybe not the best. Oh, no, it's now, good. It's good, it good macadam road. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just because, you, like, even had I not, I, I haven't been there, but I could I could see the difference. Whereas when you show a picture of, here's where a thing used to be, we have to trust you. <laughs> but in that photo, I could see it. Well, you know, the, the Library of Congress uh, when we started talking about the book and the photographs I had, and I mean, there's right now there's some. It's over six thousand photographs in the Mississippi catalog that I have, and uh, they said, "Why don't you do it then and now?" And at first I thought it was kind of corny, you know, it was a trope. Maybe eh, I wasn't all that enthusiastic about it, but as time went on and I started working with it. Uh, as I say, some of them are parallels. Right. Tyro Road, it's standing exactly. in the same spot. You see the trees are the same. Right. Uh, and then others are more like equivalents. Yeah, and, and they're not literal. And sometimes you have to sort of figure out what the, uh, what the, connection, what the is. connection is, which is kind of fun. Yeah, and, some, yeah and, and it actually turned out to be more fun than I... Matter of fact, I'm doing a thing in Berlin now. I... I uh, went to Berlin last fall to do some photography and I told my friend Michael Schulze that uh, he ought to start digitizing the photographs that he had made in Afghanistan in the early 60s and so on. And then I figured if it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander. And I came back last summer and uh, looked around and found piles. I found another 385 photographs from Mississippi. Oh, wow. And uh, things that I had thought were lost forever. So it's it's uh, it's an amazing place. I, I you know it's so intriguing. It's so rich. It's so textured. It's so layered. Uh, you can explore it forever. Or thepos. I've been exploring it pretty nonstop for the last number of years. <laughs> right. Well, I'm so delighted that you. Uh, I don't know that you you're van broke down and you've yeah. had the chance to take a ride and see something you hadn't seen before and just become entranced by it because you know we um 
we have the book now, but people have all for the last 40 years been able to watch the film, which you can also watch if you, uh, I think it's on Folkscapes, is that the name of the Yeah, but it, it's, the big one is, the nonlinear documentary is on Vimeo okay. under North Mississippi Home Place. So if you, if you go onto Vimeo and, and search North Mississippi Home Place, you'll find the original documentary. Mm-hmm. And then there's nine pieces that are linked to the book, some of which are only two or three minutes long, some of which are longer. Uh, that are, nonlinear documentary is a fabulous thing because you don't have to worry about linking things together mm-hmm. and making a story arc. You just say, here's this piece, and then here's this piece, and then here's this piece. And here's a guy making some molasses. Yeah. Which is a fascinating process. How anyone ever figured it out or had the patience to make it is amazing to me. Well, what you're looking at there probably has its roots. They probably made it no differently 200 years before that. And of course now it's mechanical presses and uh, gas-fired evaporating pans and things like that. It's totally it. They, there was a whole stuff. The mules that had people had been plowing mules and animal uh, agriculture, animal-powered agriculture for thousands of years, mm-hmm. and in the space of 20, 25 years, it all disappeared. Poof, gone. Well. It- I think you you wrote when you first moved into your house in Oxford, someone knocked on the door and offered to plow your garden for $3, and his mule was waiting on the sidewalk. (laughs) Yeah, Mr. Washington. Uh, Everybody had a garden in Oxford. My house at uh, 1538 Jackson Avenue, which uh, is also where Mr. Shapiro lived later, so therefore the house deserves a brass plaque. Mm -hmm. Uh, I paid $125 a month to live a block from the square with in a house with a garage and no air conditioning uh, with seven pecan trees over it. It's all condos now. Uh, and I, I first read Faulkner there. What better place to read Faulkner than under those seven pecan trees in Oxford? There is a, uh, a some passages in one of the trilogy books of Faulkner's, The Hamlet, The Town, so on. Mm-hmm where they describe a blacksmith shop, which was Mr. Hall's blacksmith shop to the T. You know, I can, I re, you know, I read the description and I could see it because I had walked the description that Faulkner writes. Right. Well, that's a fascinating parallel. I'll have to find, I'll have to find that passage. I forget which, it's one, one of the trilogies yeah. and I forget which one it is. I'm a librarian, I'll find it. Oh, exactly. Who better? Exactly. Well, Michael, what, what is next in, in your uh, lifelong devotion to North Mississippi? Well, we're continuing the nonlinear documentary. Katie is editing a uh, piece on, on the history of the blues, uh, since we have some rather unique footage. Turns out that uh, David Evans, up in Memphis, told me that uh, we have the only sync sound footage of Napoleon Strickland playing a guitar. Wow. Uh, we have uh, uh, Sam Langhorn recordings, which uh, I talked to, first time I talked to Scott Beretta, I said, did you ever hear of a fellow named Sam Langhorn? He said, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm doing the liner notes for the only known recordings of him. And I said, <laughs> how much you got? He said, about 45 minutes. And I said, okay, well now we got 90 minutes. And 
no one's ever heard the stuff I've got. But maybe they will. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of hoping. You can it like that and then not uh, follow through now. Well, I'm hoping to find, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that a couple of folks up at the Library of Congress, by the way, a lot of folks don't know, but I was told by the Library of Congress, American Folklife Center, mm -hmm. that the heart of the American Folklife Center, the core of the American Folklife Center is Mississippi. With all of the other 50 states and all the folklife in the other places, Mississippi is the major part of their collection. Again, because this is where the music and the, and the authors and the artists mm -hmm. and the performers have come from. I haven't heard that, but I, I'm not surprised at all. Like, I don't think my face registered any kind of shock or surprise. I was just like, yeah, that makes sense. Oh, yeah, I, sure, but Lomax, all yeah, the Lomax all the collections. Lomax yeah. Uh, yeah, no, Mississippi is at the heart of it. And they've put my, you know, I'm, 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 I find this interesting. I'm not boasting, but they've put my work in the special collection with old Alan Lomax, Pete Seeger, and Jonathan Cohen. And they said that uh, most of the people who had done folk research in the old days were coming down and shooting the, f the musicians and taking and interviewing them. And I did some of that, but I also shot their houses and I shot their livestock and I shot their, their fields and their family and their children and my stuff's in color. So it fills in a lot of gaps mm -hmm. between other collections, which I had no intention of doing. That's right. totally accidental, but I find that very interesting it that it, it worked. You know, I, would, I had no idea. Up until the time I started working at Deirdre's prompting, mm -hmm. Uh, I never thought that I had anything special, but it turns out, fortunately, somehow, that that's the way it worked. Well, I'm so glad it did work out that way. Me too. Well, Michael, thank you so much for stopping by and talking with us. A pleasure. And, um, I look forward to seeing what happens next. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Stacks and Stories the podcast of the Mississippi Library Commission, and we encourage you to visit your public library often.